So my, my interaction with Prevenient Grace and the history of it uh, started in 2009 when uh, d two of my colleagues, Martin Hanna and Darius Yankovitz and myself started planning, actually 2008 we started it, uh, started planning a major seminar uh, symposium on Jacob Arminius and Adventism. In 2010, October, it took place, and we decided that we were going to put a book out from that. And as the book got fashioned over the next two years, it grew bigger and bigger. And uh, we decided that there had never been a complete book on soteriology, on salvation, from an Adventist perspective, ever printed. So we decided to get together 18 scholars and put together the most complete book on Adventist soteriology that has ever been written, Salvation Contours of Adventist Soteriology. What I'm going to present to you this afternoon is a summary of my chapter in the book called Grace, A Brief History. And I, the, the, the focus of the book, as was the focus of the conference, or the symposium in 2010, was prevenient grace, a, a precise understanding of grace that shows that grace, the grace of God, precedes all steps of salvation. Before anything is done by any human, even consciousness of the need for salvation, God is already at work. And it is prevenient grace that has to be at the center core of an Adventist soteriology. Because without prevenient grace, we have a tendency to shift toward perfectionism. Because we stress a successful life in the spirit, living in the spirit, a sanctified life. So a sanctified life without prevenient grace suggests a very capable human. On, the, on contrast, if you say there is no prevenient grace and there is not a very capable human, but the cap humans are very incapable of any portion of salvation of themselves, then you have a tendency to go the way Desmond Ford did to where he kind of followed the, the, uh, the Calvinist understanding of a monergism of salvation. There is nothing the human does or can do, takes no part in the salvation. It is all done by God. All the works of salvation, the planning of salvation, the choosing of salvation, and ironically, the choosing of damnation. Now, now Ford didn't go there, but Calvin did. But if everything depends on God, then the saved or the not saved also depends on God. And that leaves God with the responsibility of choosing who's damned. And, and that's, that's just unacceptable in an Adventist understanding of the great controversy. So the, 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 the lack of prevenient grace in Desmond Ford led him to Calvinism or toward Calvinism and monergism. And it left us with a unsuccessful understanding of salvation. However, what he was fighting against at the time was also a lack of prevenient grace. Somewhere in there, Adventism forgot about prevenient grace. And somehow in there, the idea that humans are kind of capable of keeping the law of God, they're capable, well capable, became part of what we preached. And it is an error. Because we are incapable. The Psalms in, in Romans tells us that is, we are incapable. 
So the key to understanding Adventist soteriology is prevenient grace. And prevenient grace is uh, very clearly God initiates and empowers every step of salvation. And where I'm going to end this afternoon, if indeed I have time to get there, and I hope I do, is with Ellen White and Steps to Christ. That book is the most powerful book in Adventism on prevenient grace. She talks about it in every chapter multiple times. She never, she never uses the terminology prevenient grace. And that's fine. But she uses the concept of it throughout. And that should be the key and the core to Adventist soteriology. We have no excuse for have forgotten about God initiating and empowering every step of salvation. By the way, if I may just put it this way, I've been involved in seven book projects since 2002. By far and away, this is the most important book project I've ever been involved in. And I, I'm going to uh, be in danger of being melodramatic here, but if I were to die tomorrow, I would die satisfied that I've done something of worth because of my chapter in this book. You know, it's just, I, I'm, I'm involved in three more book projects, and I hope to see them through successfully, but they won't be as important as what I wrote here. What I wrote here is the best thing I'll probably ever write in my life. So I'm very pleased to be a part of presenting to you a history of grace from the perspective of prevenient grace. Okay, so melodramatic's over now. Uh, let's go on. When we talk about prevenient grace, and when I do this at camp meeting, I have everybody shout out. Every time I say the word prevenient grace, you shout out, God initiates and empowers. And the reason I do that is because prevenient grace is a forgotten reality in Adventism. And we need to remember it. We need to bring it back. So whenever we talk about prevenient grace, I want you to think very quickly in your mind, God initiates and empowers. God initiates and empowers. So what are you going to think about every time I say prevenient grace? Yeah, that's, that's what I want you to do. What was it? I, third time, just to make sure we get this down. Whenever I say prevenient grace, you think? Okay, because we need to put prevenient grace as the basis of Adventist soteriology once again. So let's take a look at the history of this thing. Okay, so first, grace is unmerited favor. That's kind of a dictionary definition of the word grace. And as we go from there, we see that in, Ro in Paul in Romans 3 through 8, Abraham received the gift of grace. So grace is a gift. If I were to argue that that is the, the, the rubric I would use for understanding Romans 3 through 8, that is what I'd say. Abraham received grace as a gift. Of course, that actual statement is in chapters 4 and 5, but let's go on here really quickly. In Romans 3, Paul quotes from seven different psalms to prove one thing as very authoritative from God. And that one thing is that you and I are incapable of anything but sin. You and I are incapable of not sinning. 
He has seven different places where he quotes it. Read it for yourself again. I'm going to have to rush on rather than stop and reading them. But you can think of them yourself. No one is righteous. No, not one is one of the, the Psalms quotes that Paul gives in Romans 3. But the point that Paul just drives home there from Psalm after Psalm after Psalm, we are not capable. So it's important to keep that in mind when we start studying salvation. We need to start from the right point. If we're going to understand what a human needs in salvation, this is the first point. We are not capable. Another way of saying that is uh, we have original sin. Now, there are some Adventists who are very nervous about the original sin terminology because they said, oh, yeah, uh, when, when Augustine coined that term and used it regularly and became the one who, who, who made it the norm for, for middle-aged uh, uh, understanding of, of salvation, the whole system went wrong. So we certainly can't start where he started. But Augustine does get some things right. And even though he has the passage of original sin through the sexual act, and I disagree with that, he makes all sex wrong. But sex was created as something was positive. It is God-initiated. I mean, sex is a good thing that has been perverted. And so it is not the perversion of sex that has caused original sin. It is original sin that has caused the perversion of sex. So I disagree with Augustine on how original sin is passed from person to person. But I do agree with him and with Paul that we are incapable. We are not capable. As humans, we are not capable of not sinning of saving ourselves, or of fixing the problem that we were born with. So this is original sin, the understanding of Romans 3, seven psalms to show that we are not capable. And then in Romans 4, Abraham and David are given as examples from the Old Testament that receive righteousness as a, a free gift they could not earn, not wages. What's the difference between wages and a gift? You work for wages. You earn wages. A gift, it just comes. This is, this is the joy of birthday presents. You get a birthday present. You work for a year and then you get a birthday present? No, you just exist for a year and then you get a birthday present. Of course, I hope that you got birthday presents in your childhood. It, it, it could be... Not everybody does, but I, I still give birthday presents to my son, even though he's 37 years old. I mean, I mean just, that's just it. There's, there's no work involved in birthday presents. And he loves getting that birthday present. Okay? I mean, hey, who doesn't love a free gift? So here, Abraham and David receive righteousness. Not that they were capable of it go back to chapter 3, but as a gift, as a free gift. Grace is a free gift. And then we go on to Romans 6 and, and chapter 8. In Romans 6 and chapter 8, we see uh, the, a question asked by Paul. Okay, since we receive grace, we receive righteousness as a free gift, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Okay, grace is a good thing. Sin is, is forgiven and, and covered by grace, so we should sin more, so we get more grace, right? 
Meganoito, Paul says. Absolutely not. That's not the point at all that he's making here. In chapter 6, we are buried in a death like his and resurrected to a new life like his. Okay, so clearly we are to be changed by grace. Now that's another step of grace. Go to Steps to Christ and see that you're about four steps, five steps into it by the time you get to sanctifying grace. Okay? So uh, keep your steps to Christ in mind as you're, as you're going through this. But that, that free gift of grace includes the step of starting to live differently. We are incapable of that. And yet, through the power of God, we do it. That also is a gift. That also is initiated and empowered by God. So in Romans 6, we have living a new life like His. In Romans 8, we are living the life in the Spirit. No longer are we focusing on the flesh, but we are alive in the Spirit. It is the Spirit who does this new life in us. It is not we who live the new life because we looked at the Spirit, saw a good example, and decided to follow it. No. We are living a new life in the Spirit. The Spirit is living in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the in you part. Living in you that brings you to a new living. Not that you looked at Christ and said, ah, that's how to do it. Now I know, and I'm going to do that. No, that's what Romans 7 is all about. You see, in between Romans 6 and 8 is Romans 7. Sorry, I got... Uh, too many things up there. But anyway, uh, Romans 7, since we are not capable, we are unable to overcome. And it's even hard for an Adventist to say that. What? We're incapable? We're incapable of overcoming sin? Well, no, no, that's not what it says in... Just a minute. It's the we that I'm focusing on here. It's the I, that if I am not capable of overcoming sin. You see, Romans 8 says, the spirit living in you can overcome sin. Romans 7 says, you cannot overcome sin. Why can you not overcome sin? Well, refer you back to Romans 3. Well, we are not capable. Okay, so this is basic gospel understanding. And unfortunately, somewhere in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, Adventism, with their stress on the law, almost forgot the basic Pauline gospel initiative that God initiates and empowers every step of salvation. So, Romans 6 and 8, empowered by God, we are forgiven. Is that a free gift? Not earned, not worked for, and changed. Is that a free gift? Not earned? See, this is the part that Adventists get a little wishy-washy on. We need to be confident of this. The changed life is a gift of grace. The changed life is a gift of grace. You can block it, but you can't create it. You can stop it, but you can't make it go. That's what Romans 3 is all about. Okay, so 
this is a quick Bible study from Romans 3 through 8. And do we throw out the law? Do we keep on sinning? Is the goal more grace, therefore more sin? Absolutely not. This little, this little meganoito in Greek. This is Paul shouting at the top of his voice. No, that's not what I mean. How come you guys are misquoting me? As soon as Paul started talking about the law not bringing salvation, he gets accused of being an antinomian. But Paul is not an antinomian. Paul's goal is to have you keep the law. And he knows you can't. Therefore, he wants you to allow the Spirit to live in you to keep the law. Okay, so do we keep on sinning? Absolutely not. So our will is not to keep sinning. Our will is to be in contact with the Spirit and let the Spirit live through us. Okay, so uh, let's move on. We are incapable. God is capable. God does the work of salvation. That's the basic gospel. Now, let's move on to prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. Sometimes we, we lose this as a Latin term. And since it's a Latin term, we do not find it in the Bible. You find it, of course, all over the place in, uh, in the Latin Bible, but you don't find it in the Greek Bible because it's a Latin term. So the Latin term comes from pre-venio, before plus it goes. Venio means it goes, and pre means before. Therefore, it comes before everything else in the process of redemption. It is that grace which comes before the very beginning of salvation. It is what begins the process of salvation. And what is the first step? Okay, think back to Ellen White and Steps to Christ. What is the first chapter? God's love for man. What is the second chapter? The sinner's need of Christ. Okay? So, both of those are God-initiated. We don't know that we need Christ until God initiates the realization that we need Christ. So that, that, that quotation we had for the few of you that were down uh, last night when we were talking about from, uh, from what the role of the Holy Spirit was, the Holy Spirit brings guilt. It brings the understanding that we're not okay. That's one of the early steps of salvation, is to know we need saving. That is a gift of grace. To know we need saving is a step of salvation, and it is given, initiated, and empowered by God. Okay, so in the beginning of the process by which Jesus draws us to himself, Jesus drawing us is a center core to the understanding of prevenient grace. Yes, God initiates and empowers every step of salvation, but you need to want salvation at some point before you will choose salvation. And even though that choice is going to be empowered by God, if you don't want it, you're not going to choose it. If you are given a free choice and you do not want what's being offered, you will say no. But God does not want you to say no. God wants you to say yes. Once you get around to the choice in salvation, 
about four or five steps into the process, God wants you to say yes. So he's going to empower your choice, but before he empowers your choice, he's going to draw you. He's going to woo you like a lover. He's going to show you what he has to offer for you. He wants to demonstrate what a better life you can have with him. He wants to have you know that you can trust him, that he is trustworthy, and that eternal life with him is much better than, than eternal death. Some people's view of God, I would prefer eternal death. I mean, quite frankly, some people view God so negatively that I would prefer to just not be at all than to have to be stuck in a room with him forever. God wants to let you know what he's like, that he is trustworthy and loving and has your best interest at heart. This is all part of the wooing of God. An integral part of prevenient grace is God wooing. The biggest mistake Christianity has made through the centuries has been to try to scare people into heaven by scaring the hell out of them. Preaching damnation or preaching being lost in order to scare people into choosing being saved. Absolutely wrong approach. God's approach is two-pronged. He warns of the one, but only after he has wooed toward himself. If it would not be pleasant to spend eternity with God, why would we want to spend eternity at all? God woos us. Half the stories in the Bible are God's wooing. God woos us and wants us. So he is drawing us to himself. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. This wooing is a very important part of Prevenient grace. And you're thinking, of course, God initiates and empowers. Good. Because I'm saying this a lot. And it's up there constantly. This is on purpose. I'm trying to get a message across. I'm trying to reinsert God's initiation and power in salvation in Adventist soteriology. Not that it's completely missing, but it just isn't there solidly enough. Okay, prevenient grace, that grace which goes before. Let's, it's not a biblical term, but it is a biblical concept. Now, let's take a quick moment and look up a few verses. You got your Bibles with you? Let's look up for, uh, John chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 John 1, 9, that's supposed to be. 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9, we have, and you can probably quote this one. You've got this memorized, no doubt. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's about the fourth step of salvation. Okay? But that step also, uh, you know, Ellen White says in, uh, in, the, in the chapter on confession, says we are more, no more able to confess correctly by ourselves than we are able to forgive ourselves by ourselves. Confession is a gift of God, a gift of grace. It's part of that which initiates the choice. If we confess our sins, he forgives. 
and he leads us to confession. Let's take a look at uh, John 12, 32. And then I'm going to go back to uh, John 1.9 also, because it also is a provenient grace text. Uh, John 12.32, somebody read it out nice and loud. How many? How many does God intend to save? You know, this flies right in the face of Calvinism. The idea of predestination of some, but not all. The idea that Jesus is going to draw all people to himself. Okay, now let's go back to John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 is also a good passage in Prevenient Grace. And I uh, also want you to read John 1.9. John 1.9 says, somebody read it. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens everything. How many? Every human is enlightened by the light that comes into the world. You know, these passages make it very hard to say predestination is not intended for all. There are passages that show that predestination does not end up saving all. But those passages should not wipe out the, the full reality that God is intending to save all. In uh, uh, John 10, it says, uh, God is not willing that any should be lost. Uh, let's go to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Some people say that there is no prevenient grace in Paul, which is why they rejected in the Gospels. It doesn't seem reasonable to me. Even if there wasn't prevenient grace in God and in Paul, it wouldn't mean that we should reject it in John. But let's take a look at prevenient grace in Paul. It's, it's all over the place in Paul as well. Somebody read verses 12 to 14 of Romans 2. Okay, so what is the, what is the, the major point? I, I started with Romans 3 and went through Romans 8. But the major point of Romans 1 and 2 is that nobody is without excuse, right? But the flip side of that, nobody is without excuse, means that God is reaching for all. Those who have the law or those who do not have the law are receiving the invitation of God. And so Romans 1 and 2 is used by the Calvinists very carefully to only say everybody's without excuse. But without excuse means you've had reason to be chosen. You've had reason to be invited. So the, the, the point in Paul is sometimes a little less in your face than in John. But the logic is there. All are being invited. All are without excuse, and all are living, whether they have the law or not, are 
being invited to be in this relationship with God. Okay, so let's, let's move on. There's, there's others we could use. Prevenient grace is a universal grace. That is that all people are being invited by God to be in a saving relationship with him. But it does not mean a universal salvation. You know, one of the biggest complaints that some of the Calvinists have against the Arminians, those who believe in a choice in salvation and prevenient grace, they say, oh, no, 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 no. You're seeking, you're, you're, if, if God is absolutely giving salvation to everybody he calls, then there would be universalism if it was for all. And we know there's not universalism. There's several texts that talk about the destruction of the wicked. The devil and his angels himself proves that there's not universalism. True enough, there is no universal salvation in Scripture. But there is a universal call for salvation. And that's the part that is missed most prevalently. And prevenient grace is the key to understanding how that universal call comes. Prevenient grace initiates and empowers. And once we are empowered, we have a choice to make. And the reason not everybody's saved is because some people say no and some people say yes. But we are not born with the ability to say yes. That is an empowered choice initiated by God. Okay? Then let's look on choice is involved in salvation. That is a very, very much a truism. Choice is involved in salvation. Choice without prevenient grace suggests a very capable human. If you do not have a concept of the grace that comes before salvation, and yet you believe in choice in salvation, then the fallback is that you believe in a human capable of that choice born with the capability of that choice. But that's not what Romans 3 tells us. Romans 3 tells us that we are incapable by nature. And the capability comes as prevenient grace, God initiating and empowering. So choice without prevenient grace, and that's where Adventism was when they forgot prevenient grace in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and there's a resurgence of that now. Uh, unfortunately. There's a certain segment of Adventism that is resurging back to, oh, we need to go back to the good old days when we had it all figured out in 1955 or whatever that was. And I'm saying, no. We need to go back to the good old days when Ellen White was telling us how to figure it all out. Back in the days when Steps to Christ was written and we were understanding that there's prevenient grace involved. So choice without prevenient grace, Adventist soteriology without prevenient grace suggests a very capable human. And there's a question that I'm going to ask right here. This is my litmus test to figure out whether you can trust your view of salvation. It's a simple question. Who are you depending on for your salvation? And if the answer is anything except God, 
Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Father. If the answer is any different than that, you're in trouble. Because nobody except God has salvation to offer. That's the bottom line. If you end up depending on yourself or your parents or your church, you're going to be disappointed. Because you and your parents and your church have no salvation to offer. Only God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has salvation to offer. So who are you depending on for your salvation is a very important part of figuring out whether you have a good view of salvation or not. Of course, you have to be honest about that. Okay, grace plus merit. This is a concept that uh, the early church abandons Pauline grace very early on. It, it, in their defense, they're stressing a, a, a life of righteousness so that they will not bring ill repute to the church and to their Savior Jesus Christ. They want to live a life of righteousness so that they can be the ambassadors that God wants us to be. This is a noble goal, but you have to get there in the right way. If you get to the noble goal of being an ambassador for God by willpower instead of grace, you're in trouble. Okay, so here we go. Ignatius of Antioch has a tension between the capable action and grace, capable actions of humans and grace. And herein lies the problem. Too much capability on the part of the human. And Ignatius talks in terms of, of being uh, a copy of Christ and of Paul, especially in his martyrdom. He uses the term, I am the grain of Christ, the wheat of Christ, the, the offering of Christ. So when he, in his martyrdom, he thinks he's going to be, and he actually uses the term hilasterion, the term, I am a mercy seat in my sacrifice. Whoa, just a minute now. That's taking a human in the place of Christ's uh, uh, sacrifice there. He also talked about this, which is uh, kind of the other side of the coin. But if God rewarded us according to our works we would cease to be. So you know, he doesn't go completely off the handle there. Uh, Justin Martyr talks in terms of human choice remaining after the fall. And here I disagree with Justin Martyr because Paul disagrees with Justin Martyr. And Paul quotes seven Psalms to prove this as false. There's other places you can get it from the Old Testament as well. Theophilus of Antioch is a little more surprising. He says, God gave us a law. This is Theophilus' uh, example of grace. He says, don't worry though, God has given us grace. And this is his terminology of what God's grace is. God has given us a law and holy commandments. And whoever performs them can be saved and obtain eternal life for himself. Well, that doesn't sound what, what Paul was saying in Romans 3 through 8, does it? Origen takes it more overtly. In, uh, in uh, On First Principles, book one, twice in the first five chapters, he talks about the Holy Spirit, and he's talking in the context of the Holy Spirit living in you. He says the Holy Spirit is given to those who merit it. 
and only a few merit the Holy Spirit, so only a few get the Holy Spirit, and those few are the ones that are getting salvation. He talks about meriting the Holy Spirit. That's the exact opposite of the free gift of grace. Okay, so my question is, who are they depending on for their salvation? Themselves. At some level, they're dependent on themselves. Okay, Augustine and the, the Pelagian controversy. There's many other uh, early church fathers I could use to illustrate this, but I'm going to jump right into the biggie. Augustine and the Pelagian controversy. Here we have Augustine. Augustine gets some things right. He taught prevenient grace as well as predestination. So this is a hole in Augustine's logic. Augustine was not a systematizer. Augustine was one who wrote treatises. And in one treatise, he writes about prevenient grace. In another treatise, he writes about predestination. Now, Augustine's predestination and his prevenient grace never come together in one, one writing. If they did, he would see, oh, well, this is a problem. There's a logic problem here. We can't have predestination in the way that, that John Calvin copies from Augustine and prevenient grace. John Calvin caught that logic, and he cut out the prevenient grace and kept the predestination. But Augustine's predestination is not quite as individualistic as John Calvin's is. He talks in terms of predestination of Christian nations. You are predestined to be a Christian if you are born into a Christian nation. We'll go on and you'll see how that works out. So for, for Augustine, salvation he sees as monergism. We are not capable, therefore we need God's prevenient grace. But Augustine does not argue, that, like Jacob Arminius does later, that that prevenient grace leads to a God-initiated and power choice. Instead, he says that it leads to a monergism. All the work of salvation is from God's part. There's nothing for the human to do. Now, and he's kind of right, but not quite. It is true that all the power for the work of salvation comes from God. And all the, the change in our life comes from God. But God gives us that choice. It's empowered by God, so that's God's work but we make the choice and we can say no. Augustine says, you can't say no. If God chooses you and it's God's will for you to be saved, you can't say no. Same thing that John Calvin says later on. God's will is supreme. And if he wills you to be saved, you're going to be saved. You cannot say no to God. That's what Augustine concludes. So only God acts in our salvation. We never act. We're completely passive. No choice involved. Now, Pelagius, on the other hand, goes to the opposite extreme. And he goes to the opposite extreme partially because Augustine's gotten so extreme. Okay, but now, truth be told, we do not know exactly what Pelagius taught himself because we do not have enough writings by Pelagius to tell. So most of what we hear about Pelagius is what we are told by his enemies. 
And that's never a safe way to get information about somebody. So I usually talk in terms of Pelagianism rather than what Pelagius taught. Because it is possible that Pelagius did not teach Pelagianism. But Pelagianism is what comes down to us as the description of what Pelagius taught. And the description may not be a good description. It may not be accurate. But anyway, it is what is contrasted with Augustine. So we have Pelagianism and we have Augustinianism. And so in Pelagianism, we have the teaching that humans are born sinless and then they learn to sin from their environment. They, you learn to sin from your parents because your parents were sinful. Well, how'd they get sinful? Well, their parents were sinful, so they learned from them. Well, how'd their parents get sinful? Well, they learned from their parents because their parents were sinful. Well, how'd they get sinful? Well, they learned from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. So Seth learned to sin from Adam and Eve, same as Cain and Abel did. So there is no original sin as far as Pelagius is concerned. Sin is something you learn from your environment. Therefore, if you're a strong-willed person, you can buck your environment. You can work against your environment. You can handle sin. You're capable. You can do it. You just got to try harder. Salvation is a synergism for Pelagianism. You cooperate with God to save yourself. So God points out that you need to change, and you say, okay, I'll change. And since you learn to sin, you can learn not to sin. That's Pelagianism. Very capable human. Okay? So in the Augustine and Pelagian controversy, Augustine gets some things right. And this is really simplifying it because of time. Okay? Augustine gets it right that God initiates and empowers. He gets that right. And all the works of salvation are done by God. Okay? So you have, uh, he, he, he coins the phrase that we like to use. It's a, it's a very important phrase from, uh, from uh, uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin. De sola gloria. To God alone is the glory for my salvation. There's no reward in my salvation. It's all gift. So to God alone belongs the glory for my salvation. I don't get a piece of the credit. I don't say, okay, God did about, you know, 75% of this, and if I hadn't been there to do that last 25%, I wouldn't be saved. So I get to brag about my salvation. What does Paul say? There is no room for boasting. Zero. No room for boasting. This is this is a Pauline idea. To God alone be the glory for my salvation. So Augustine gets these two things right. But Augustine also gets some things wrong. And the things that he gets wrong become very problematic. First of all, Augustine gets wrong that predestination means that humans have no choice. Part of this God initiating and empower should have been initiating and empowering a human choice. But Augustine doesn't go that way. Humans have no choice. So he gets some things right and he gets some things wrong. Also, there is nothing for humans to do in salvation. Salvation is a monergism. 
only God acts in your salvation. Now, I agree with this one, that only God gets the glory for my salvation. But I do not agree with this one. I think that Paul is presenting a synergism, but not a Pelagian synergism, a different synergism that we'll come to uh, as we get to later on this afternoon. So in the Augustine and Pelagian controversy, Pelagian gets one thing right. The one thing he gets right is there is choice. Human beings do make choices in salvation. There is a synergism. But he gets some things wrong, too. He has too much human involved in it. The human is too capable. Sin is a learned habit that can be easily overcome. Is that accurate according to Paul? No. No, this is not a biblical doctrine. This is a heresy. And humans are by nature capable. This, again, is not a biblical doctrine. Now, it is true that the first Adam was capable. But Seth wasn't. And neither are we. So, Pelagius has a very high anthropology. And he says, Jesus, as our brother human, saves through example. So this is a very low Christology. He emphasizes the, the sameness between us and Christ. And it's true that, that Jesus takes on a, a full human nature. But it's like Adam not like us. He was not born with the propensities to sin. You and I were born with the propensities to sin. The Bible says of Jesus, the thing within her is holy. The Bible says of you and I, my mother conceived me in sin. We were born sinners. Christ was not. So there's a difference between Christ and and us. Now, it is true that he was tempted way beyond us, and he could have fallen, but we're not the same. He had it much harder than we have it. He was much more capable than us, therefore he was tempted a lot more difficultly than we are. For instance, just for an example, I have never, ever been tempted to turn stones into bread for a simple reason. I can't. No matter how hungry I get, I will never be able to turn stones into bread. Now, the temptation for Christ was way worse than my temptation. Because I'm incapable and he was capable. He could have turned the stones into bread. And his temptation was to act on his own behalf for his own selfishness instead of depending on his father. I have often acted on my own behalf with my own selfishness. That's why I need salvation. Jesus did not need salvation. He brought salvation. So, Jesus as brother saves through example. He shows us how to do it. And you were born, according to Pelagius, you were born sinless. And you learn to sin by watching your parents and your environment so you can choose to follow Jesus. 
you can say, okay, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me. I want you to choose to follow Jesus. Okay? Don't, do not ever say that I'm an antinomian, that I don't want you to follow Jesus, just like Paul was accused of this. Meganoito. May it not be. I want you to follow Jesus. Just don't pretend you can do it on your own. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to have to be God-initiated and God-empowered. Not self-initiated and self-powered. Okay, so, who is Pelagius, depending on for his salvation? Himself. Now, we're going to stop here, have a break, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to complicate it. Then I'll simplify it. Okay, that's, that's the way things happen. Okay, so thank you very much for your kind attention. We'll have a few minutes break, and then I think we're going to have another song and another prayer, and then we'll get underway.